Father, tonight we're thankful we're back. We're thankful that we have uh, the opportunity to study together again on a rainy night, but nonetheless, Father, in a dry room. Thank you, Father, for the Word and for an attentiveness and an interest to study it. And we ask that it would speak to us through your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we stopped in the middle of four chapters I called Isaiah's Little Apocalypse because it is in many ways a a miniature version of, of Revelation, particularly in the structure. I think as a way of easing us back into the material, I want to cover the last four or five verses of chapter 25, which we read in its entirety at the end of last time. But, you know, I didn't spend much time on it because in some ways it didn't need a lot of exposition. It was fairly easy to understand. But on the other hand, a little bit of attention to the end will get us into chapter 26 nicely. So if you'll have your Bibles open to Isaiah 25, verse 6 is where we'll pick up and reading into the end of that chapter, verse 12. And then we'll look at how that sets us back up into this part of Isaiah's book called the Little Apocalypse. So verse 6, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched out over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation." For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain and Moab will be trotted down in his place as straw is trotted down in the water of a manure pile. And he will spread out his hands in the middle of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pride together with the trickery of his hands. The unassailable fortifications of your walls he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground, even to the dust. So do you remember what chapter 25 was about? In order of sequence, it followed a chapter that spoke at length about tribulation and mirrored the kinds of events that we see in Revelation when it comes to tribulation. And then it gave way in chapter 25 to the scene of the Messianic kingdom, the millennial kingdom. That again mirrors the general organization of Revelation. You have uh, following the rapture of the church, tribulation, and after tribulation, the millennial kingdom. And after the millennial kingdom, we learn of a new heavens and new earth. At about verse 6, you see in verse 6 one of the first events of the new kingdom. I want to highlight what I think is going on in the text here in terms of time. If we're following roughly the, the order of events that occur in Revelation, you have a timeline in Revelation, and at a point you transition from tribulation to the millennial kingdom. Now, a lot more is said about the left side of that line, the, the tribulation side, than is said about what follows. If you think of it just in chapter terms, There's only chapters 19 and really chapters 20 through 22 for the second part. So uh, the detail of the book of Revelation quickly wraps up as you move past tribulation. In Isaiah's case, when you look at the little apocalypse, we've devoted basically one chapter to the tribulation side. Now we're going to see largely three chapters devoted to the right side of that line. In fact, if you didn't know this already... When you go to the Bible to learn about the the end times, the last days of the earth, if your interest is in the events of tribulation, you should go to the New Testament and specifically to Revelation if you want the most detail possible. Now, clearly, there's also some things in the Old Testament that tell you about tribulation 
granted. But if you had to pick one, the New Testament has much more to say about tribulation, and particularly in the book of Revelation. But what's fascinating is if you want details about what follows tribulation, the Messianic kingdom, the millennial kingdom, you don't go to the New Testament for that. Most of the detail is found in the Old Testament. So we are going to marry the two up, of course, in the process of teaching Isaiah here and Revelation eventually on Sunday nights. But for now, I want you to know that this chapter we are looking at now, this very end of chapter 25, it's looking at the Messianic kingdom, but in terms of a timeline, it's a very narrow window. It's only looking, arguably, at the first hours, maybe the first day or two, from what we can tell. Because in verse 6, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. Now, that's a singular event. It didn't say we will have banquets on the mountain. It's about a singular event, some specific meal that's important enough that it, men- that it deserves mentioning. And it deserves mentioning in conjunction with the start of the Messianic kingdom. Remember, chapter 25 in sequence terms, chapter 25 here begins the discussion of that period of time. The feast that Jesus is describing here, he talks about it at several points in his first coming when he walked the earth. For example, in Matthew 22, Jesus tells a parable that I'm sure many of you have heard already of a wedding feast that opens up the time of the Messianic kingdom. And it's a picture of your entry into the kingdom. In other words, in the parable, Jesus uses your right to sit at that table as a euphemism, as a way of saying you're in the kingdom. And likewise, he talks about others who will have no seat at this table as a way of saying they are not going to be part of the Messianic kingdom. Being in or out was defined by whether you got to eat at the table or not. Later in Matthew 25, as part of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus speaks about another parable you're very familiar with, I'm sure, of the groom returning for his bride and the bride waiting for his groom anxiously. And the intent of her wait is for the opportunity to participate in a wedding feast. And that theme is carried out elsewhere in the Old Testament quite often. This this idea that the inaugural event of the Messianic Kingdom is a feast which is hosted by Christ and at whose table you want to join. In verse 8, we find another interesting detail about this time to come. He says, this new age results in the swallowing up of death for all time. Anybody here knows their eschatology should take a look at that and say, "Ah, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Because it's not true. Well, at least not for all people, in other words. It's only true for some who enter into the kingdom. Now, you look at the text, though, and you say, wait a minute, he said there that the Lord, he will swallow up death for all time. Well, if you know anything about this time of the Messianic kingdom, you know that men and women will die at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, if not throughout the whole time itself. We know at the very least, when this thousand years is up, there's mass death at the end. Let me read you the part of Revelation where that occurs. Revelation 20, verse 7. When the thousand years are complete, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the the seashore. And they come up on the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. 
Now, that scene tells us at least three things about the days of the Messianic kingdom and some interesting things when you really start to pick it apart. First, men are still possessed of sin. Some are anyway. And susceptible to the schemes of the enemy. Some men, secondly, are still subject to physical death. Remember, Scripture teaches there are only two possible death experiences for any given individual. The first death is the physical death of the body. The second death is the death of the soul at the great white throne judgment. Believers are told that we will only experience the first. We will never experience the second. Obviously, unbelievers get both. In this moment, in the one I just described out of Revelation 20, these people are not dying the second death. This is not a description of the great white throne judgment and the second death that it provides. This is a scene in which real life people are still walking around on the earth and they're suffering the physical death of a first death. If they're dying a first death, it means they were born sometime in this period of time because they couldn't have lived a thousand years without suffering their first death if they're natural men. There's no, there's no premise for that out of Scripture. There's no prospect for that. So at some point they're born in this period of time. They're subject to physical death still because they're still sinful. They come to this point and as unbelievers they're consumed by God's wrath and they die a first death. Later to follow with the second death, of course, when the great white throne judgment occurs. So what we're learning in these details is that death is still a reality in the Messianic kingdom, at least for some. So how can Isaiah say that death ends? Well, take a, look at, a closer look at the context around those statements. For example, in verse 8, Isaiah says, The Lord removes the reproach from His people. In the text it says, My people, in the first person. But it's His people. Who are His people? The Jewish nation, specifically. Remember, this is Isaiah, Jewish prophet, writing to a Jewish audience. When he says, my people, his reader only thinks of one kind of people, the Jewish people. My people. And then, remember, this is the context throughout chapter 25. Look, look at some of the verses we read as well, a little further down the page. In verse 9, for example, he says, This is our God whom we have waited that He might save us. This is the Lord on whom we've waited. There's only one group of people on earth who have, quote, waited to know their Messiah. That's the Jewish people. We know him now, but as Gentiles, we were not waiting to know him before we knew him. There's no such thing. The Jewish people, though, are the only ones who had been given a word to know and look for this Messiah, though many missed him, of course. So, in other words, this verse, these verses from about eight down are the Jewish people's expression, the Jewish people's perspective, having entered into their kingdom, the one they were promised by their Messiah. And the Jewish people, therefore, never experienced death again. The Jewish people have no sin. These statements are true for them. If not true for the entire world, it is true for them. So what we're learning is that there are no natural men among the, Jew, among the Jews who enter into the Messianic kingdom. Said another way, by the point that tribulation is over and we're walking into the Messianic kingdom, all Jews who are saved have gone through physical death or a rapture-like process and have reached the point of the new man, the incorruptible, who will never again experience death. They are all resurrected. No Jew, even those who may live naturally to the end of tribulation and see Christ return, evidently, before they enter into the Messianic kingdom, God moves them, maybe in a rapture-like process, directly into their new state such that they never experience death again. They never have any sin. 
Any who are saved Jews and enter into the kingdom must come in incorruptible, it would seem. Otherwise, these statements make no sense. We're told that in our new state, resurrected state, we will be like the angels, not given into marriage. So men and women who live to the end of tribulation do not suffer the first death, but because they're believers, have entrance into the kingdom. They came to faith during tribulation. They're called the tribulation saints. They're still natural. They can still marry and still have kids. Are their kids born believers? No more necessarily than ours. That's where you get all the babies that become all the people that are all down here at the end of this time, ready to rise up and conquer Christ. But the Jews must be coming through and moving into their incorruptible state as well, because the testimony of Scripture is, my people, God wipes away the tears, he removes the reproach of his people from all the earth. He removes the reproach from his people, from all the earth. And it will be said in that day, here's the God we've waited for, and there is no more death for them, there is no more sin for them. You have God's promise to the, to the nation of Israel that he would have them as a people ruling in their land, safe and secure and stable. And that stability and peace is the promise fulfilled that they've been waiting on since they heard it through Abraham. There is some guesswork going on in this conversation. Obviously, we're having to guess a little at how it would be that natural men can suddenly no longer be under the penalty of sin. The scripture is silent on how. They aren't raptured during the church's rapture. The word rapture describes an event, not a process. Those who have been called to faith between Pentecost and the rapture, that's it. Those are the ones being raptured. So we're assuming a similar process. It's a reasonable assumption, but that's not the same as proof. We'll just have to live with that for now. But understand that to accomplish what's being said, you have to leave the natural state. And yet we know that not all do, because there's still death and sin, that leaves us with only one conclusion. Some are in this perfect state. Others are not. Who are the some? Well, the only reasonable definition is his people. He must be speaking about the Jews. That's consistent with Paul in Romans 11 when he says all Israel will be saved. So where does the new sinful generation of people come from again? A number of people so great, they're like the sands of the seashore, John says in Revelation. And then the enemy comes out and is capable of deceiving them to the point where they would rise up against the Lord who's reigning on earth physically. And of course, they suffer as a result. Where would all those people come from? They have to be Gentile. They are the descendants of believers. No one walks into this kingdom except a believer. But just as today, a child of a believer is without any guarantees, similarly there. And apparently, God is still leaving some in their sin even in that day. If you want to see this play out in scriptures, it's somewhat obscure, but not really. In Matthew 25, when Jesus is talking at length on, in the Olivet Discourse about the nature of his return in these times, he gets to the point of his return. He mentions his physical return to the earth. And the very next thing he talks about is the separation of the sheep and the goats. Remember now sheep, we know, is a metaphor for believers, goats, not believers, well, we know what happens to the goats, right? They're described in chapter 19 as the ones whose bodies the, the vultures are feeding on. It's this scene of the believe, unbelievers being, being put to death in the, in, in the manner of Christ's return. But what happened to all the sheep? See, that's the thing we forget. The sheep are believers who are still alive. In, in other words, people like you and I are today, natural believers. The sheep are led into the kingdom. And those believers become the population of the nations in which we then rule but they can repopulate, they can go on to their lives and have children who can have children. We do not join them in that. We are separate. Isn't it going to be interesting to be in a world where you have incorruptible, immortal, sinless people going
governing over them in Christ's government, mixing and living together, each knowing who the other is with Christ ruling among us. I mean, that's, that's the kind of tangible reality that you need to start to grasp. So the nation of Israel has been made complete and full, and it's the epitome of Israel living out the fulfillment God had intended for them from the beginning. Perfectly. All right, Isaiah 26, the third chapter of the Apocalypse is a song. I'm not going to sing it, but it's a song praising our Lord. So the ultimate purpose of the song is praising our Lord in his role as judge and king. Now, here we go, following the same basic timeline. If we've just left the inaugural moment of the Messianic kingdom in Isaiah's pattern here, then the next chapter follows with a praise to what he's like as king. Now, the timeline gets really open here. We're not talking about dates and times anymore. We're just talking about the whole period now. What is it like to have God reigning on earth? Which is really probably one of our chief questions too, right? This is a song illuminating that. Now, a lot of it is pretty easy on its face, so we don't delve into every verse at the same, to the same degree. But just like we've seen already, there are some fascinating little details that pop out of the text. That's what we're going to focus on more than anything. It begins with an introduction. First six verses are just an introduction to the song. In that day, the song says in verse 1, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up walls and ramparts for security. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the one that remains faithful. The steadfast of mine you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. For he has brought low those who dwell on high, the unassailable city. He lays it low. He lays it low to the ground. He casts it to the dust. The foot will trample it, the feet of the afflicted, the steps of the helpless. Notice something that ties us back to chapter 25. We, who's we? A song sung in the land of Judah. We, so we know we're talking about this nation of Israel and the Jews who are living in it, none of whom are sinful. So it's 100% saved, all of them already resurrected. Look what they say. They say, among other things, Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter. Now, you may ask yourself, well, why wouldn't it say nations? Aren't we all in the same state now? We've all moved into the kingdom. We're all righteous. No. Remember, the Gentile nations are an amalgamation or a combination of the incorruptible, raptured believers who rule with Christ. But we rule over sinful people. In fact, that's the need for rule. I don't have to rule over people who are perfect. They already do everything the right way. You rule over people who need adjudication, decision-making, guidance, decisions about right and wrong because they don't have the instincts in every case to do the right thing. So we're ruling over a nation that is not altogether righteous. So you have a Jewish nation, chief nation on the earth, surrounding, uh, surrounded by Gentile nations, many of whom we've already talked about in Isaiah. And in those Gentile nations, it's not to, you cannot say a righteous nation. If you mean every last person, it's not true. Not ultimately the one that remains faithful in verse 2. That's particularly telling because what was the last time going to be like, the last days of that thousand years? Was every nation going to remain faithful to God in those last days? No, I mean, they're all turning against Him. Only the Jewish nation, could you say, will remain faithful the whole thousand years. Kind of amplifies what we just talked about. Moving a little further, look at a couple of details and then we'll come into the text again. Walls, ramparts, they're symbols, uh, the Scripture says, of the one who rules, the rock. And the overwhelming quality of his rule for Jerusalem and and for Judah is peace and stability. And that's exactly what Bill was alluding to a minute ago. Peace and stability. 
And if there are two qualities to life that most Jews have never experienced, almost since the beginning of their existence as a people, it has been peace and stability, those elusive things that they always say they want. And Christ always promised they'd get, now they've got it. And that'll be the dominant feature of life in Jerusalem in that day. Now, in verses 5 and 6, there's a contrast. Hopefully you picked up on it. It's simply the contrast between that stability with Christ reigning and an unnamed place, the unassailable city. That's a sarcastic statement because they're being laid low. So clearly they were assailable. But in their day, they were seen as unassailable. That's Babylon. Now, Babylon, as the city that was trampled down, is probably more than just one city. It's probably Babylon, the, the symbol. Babylon, which is a symbol of the enemy and all, he, all of his fortress being laid low. Remember, the chief enemies of Israel usually were Babylon first, Moab second, Egypt third. That's almost always the pattern. So when you just wanted to, to generalize to Israel's enemies, you pick one of those two or three and you, you made your point. And that's exactly what he's doing here. Now, moving into the rest of the text here in verse 7. The way of the righteous is smooth. O upright one, make the path of the righteous level. Indeed, while following the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you eagerly. Your name, even your memory, is the desire of our souls. At night, my soul longs for you, and indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently. For when the earth experiences your judgments, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. Though the wicked is shown favor, he does not learn righteousness. He deals unjustly in the land of uprightness and does not perceive the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, yet they do not see it. They see your zeal for the people and are put to shame. Indeed, fire will devour your enemies. Lord, you will establish peace for us since you have also performed for us all our works. O Lord, our God, other masters besides you have ruled us, but through you alone we confess your name. The dead will not live. The departed spirits will not rise. Therefore, you have punished or I'm sorry, the dead will. Yeah, I'm sorry. I said it right. I thought I said it wrong. The dead will not live. The departed spirits will not rise. Therefore, you have punished and destroyed them and you have wiped out all remembrance of them. You have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You've extended all the borders of the land. All right. So thinking through this, the first thing to remember is this song is sung during the kingdom. Now, why do I reemphasize that? Because at least in one case, and probably in more than one, very smart men have come to these verses and interpreted them in light of Isaiah's contemporary days and looked to make sense of these statements in that context. How you do that in light of all that's going on around this chapter, I don't know, because that makes no sense to me. This is still squarely a song sung in that day, it says, in Judah. Now, if you put it in that context, boy, the meaning changes dramatically. Because you have to ask yourself, what do these statements mean living in a world where Christ is reigning on earth and all that we've already said is going on? For example, in verses 7 through 9, the righteous there describing their relationship to this king. They know him. They follow his ways. They follow his judgments. Well, of course we do. We're sinless. At least we're talking now about those who reign with him. The Jewish people, let's say, and you and I in the church, we can't help but follow him. What he says, we do, as we should. Notice in verse 8, his name and even our memory of him is the desire of our souls. Now, why do we have to talk about a memory of the, of the Christ? He's here. You would think memory is no longer a factor. What memory would we be thinking about? His saving grace on the cross. This affection we have for his sacrificial death, by affection, you know what I mean, right? The, 
the appreciation of it, the awesomeness of it, the, you know, all that comes with it. We don't lose that in the new world. In other words, we're going to continue to remember back and point back to Christ on the cross. If you know anything about Ezekiel, you know that there's a section in Ezekiel that describes a fourth temple, the one that is built during this thousand-year reign, the one in which Christ sits and rules from. And in this fourth temple, Ezekiel describes elaborate descriptions of the new sacrificial system that is instituted during the thousand years while Christ is sitting in the temple. It is not the same as the Mosaic system. It has some notable differences, so it's not the same as saying the law returns or anything like that. It's a new system, but it is still yet a sacrificial system. Blood of bulls and goats kind of thing. And you ask yourself, wait a minute, I read the book of Hebrews last time I checked. We don't need to do that anymore. Well, the book of Hebrews is written to the church, not to the Messianic kingdom. We don't need to do it anymore. But the question is, why would it ever need to come back? As it apparently does. Well, I think it ties to this idea of the memory. Why was the sacrificial system given to, to the nation of Israel in the first place, back under Moses? To accommodate and produce righteousness? No. To forgive sins? The blood of bulls and goats cannot remit sin, right? So it, it could not wash away our sin. It could be a sacrifice of obedience to God and show our faith in Him and, and, and as an act of obedience be considered covering. But that's not the same thing as as obviously accommodating our sin eternally. But it's picturing Christ's ultimate sacrifice on our, our, our behalf, even as it reflects our obedience if we're living under the law. So the purpose didn't change. The memory is still important. Though I'm already saved and I'm in this new state with him here, hey, the act back there is still the reason you're here. In the forward-looking sense, it was important to know it's coming. Having come, it's just as important to remember it happened. It has to be the same purpose it had initially, the, the spilling of blood is required for the remission of sin, but it has to be a perfect, sinless blood, and the blood of bulls and goats doesn't suffice. The way I've always put it is the, the living out of the sacrificial system, when it's done properly, is a gigantic play in which the world is the audience and God is the director, and he has said, work the play this way because the story you're going to tell as you go through this is important to me and my glory. And the story is Christ, our sin and Christ's blood. The cross is ultimately where it happens for real. The sacrificial system is a play. And I always give the analogy that just like if I did an Agatha Christie murder play, you don't walk away from the theater at night thinking someone actually died, right? You, you know it was a play, but you know it, it reflected something that could happen in real life. That's the p perspective we're supposed to take at, the, at how the sacrificial system worked in God's economy. It didn't produce the eternal. It reflected the eternal. And in our obedience to it, we became a partner in God's testimony. We became a partner in that play, in that, in that communication to the world. To the one who would not participate in it, they were saying more about their heart than anything. As I participate in that work, I am pleasing God and I am sanctified through that work. My salvation, though, still depends on the Messiah as always. That distinction is somewhat difficult for some people and they begin to wonder, well, do I need to do it or not? You know, today, no. In the future, apparently someone does. It says, since you have also performed for us all our works, I think that's in connection with what Ephesians says when he says, you have prepared before us, beforehand for us righteous works. The sense that what it is we have or, or what we can point to that's good about us or our, our situation or our circumstances all trace to him to include our own good works. I think that's the sense of it to me. Do you see it different? 
Lord, you will establish peace for us since you have also performed for us all our works. Meaning, did you save yourself in your own works? No, he did all the work for us. All the good works that put us here and let us serve him are from his will. Verse 9, the people sing that the world learns what righteousness is by experiencing Christ's judgment as he rules. But if you think about that, that means he has to be ruling over sin. Right? Think about what it's saying. It's saying that somebody figured out what the right thing was because they watched Christ say it, do it, or mandate it. But that in itself means before that moment, I was on the wrong side of something. I didn't know the truth. I was, didn't, I was unaware of righteousness until Christ made a judgment and then it came to me, oh, oh, that's what the right thing was. Now, whether I accept it or not is another point. But it requires, for that statement to be true, it requires that Christ is in and amongst sin, judging it, ruling over it, deciding it. And the effect of that process is, for the first time in history, a perfect judge is executing perfect judgments. And so, without ever a doubt, you know what the right thing is. Just watch Christ. As opposed to our justice system, which, imperfect as it, it is, you, know, you, you can't look at it necessarily as coming to the right conclusion every time. Verse 10. We learn that though the wicked are being shown favor in this time, and you could take that to mean no more than just what we see today, right? God brings rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Favor could just be the fact that they're allowed to live there for a while. He shows them favor. That alone is not enough for them to learn righteousness. The difference between verse 9 and verse 10 is explained by the difference between a corporate experience and a personal experience. Corporately, the world learns what righteousness looks like as they observe Christ's ruling. Personally, however, watching Christ at work isn't enough by itself to produce righteousness in our lives and, and much less faith in an unbeliever. The unbeliever, he says, deals unjustly in this land of uprightness and doesn't perceive the majesty of the Lord. The word perceive, ra'ah in the, in the Hebrew, it's a very common word, literally means to see. But in the Hebrew sense of it, it's to see with understanding. Which is why we see why the word perceive is being used here and not simply the word see. It's to give regard to something, to understand the essence of something as you perceive it, as you see it. And the word majesty, geuth in the Hebrew, it just means God's excellence, which fits in with this idea of his righteous judgments. When he's doing what's excellent and right, they don't perceive it. They can't make sense of it. It does not impress upon them what you would hope it would impress. So in verse 11, what they see won't persuade, at least for some, so ultimately they're put to shame and they're devoured. And I think the reference there to devoured is a direct reference to what happens at the end of the thousand years. Not that that means all of them are devoured in that one moment. There's death all the way through. But I'm saying that's a picture of it, certainly. All right, now the last section there, verses 12 through 15, that completes this second section of the song. The first section was the introduction. The second section is praising his leadership, praising his judging through the course of the thousand years. It says... He establishes peace, made possible all their works, made possible their confession of his name and banished the departed unbelievers. There was something in here that caught my eye. I hope it did yours as well. I found it, I guess you could say, on the one hand disturbing, but on the other hand reassuring, if that's possible. He says, God erases from our memories any knowledge of the people who have died in the past and were unbelievers. Some family member. That you know, you know, today you're convinced they're an unbeliever, they die that way, and maybe somewhere in the back of your mind you, you wonder, I'll be in eternity, and yes, I'll be happy, but I wonder what it will be like to think 
about the ones who didn't make it here with me and I miss them and that kind of a thought. This is a testimony to the fact that God in His grace removes those memories. I mean, if they're not going to be there, then what good is the memory from the point of view of how it affects us? Better that it not be there. And I think God in His wisdom has come to that same decision, obviously. Finally, for the Jewish people, the Lord has increased their nation's borders. This is an interesting statement worth just a moment in itself. The borders of Israel today are not the borders God has granted Israel in the Bible. Do you know where you go to find the true borders of Israel as best we can in, in, in the way God has planned it? It's actually in Joshua. Joshua chapter 1. Because, of course, in Joshua chapter 1, what do we see happening? They're finally walking into that land after the exile into, into Egypt, right? And here's what they're told. Joshua 1 verse 2. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads I have given to you, just as I have spoken to Moses. And here's the definition. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun, will be your territory. Now, you have to kind of parse it out and make sense of it on a map. But what he describes is basically from Lebanon, which is current day just south of Syria, all the way down to where the, the land of the Hittites is southern Israel, probably down to about the Brook of Egypt, which is the classic place the line is drawn. But then from east-west, you said from the Great Sea, which is the Med, Mediterranean, the place where the sun sets in the west, all the way to the Euphrates. That's modern-day Iraq. That's Israel, as it was intended. God was declaring that in Joshua. Now, did they ever take control of that land? That's the land that he has parceled out for Israel. But they don't see it until the time that they enter in. That's why in Isaiah, where I just read in verse 15, he says, you have extended all the borders of the land. It's a reference to the fact that they finally get this grander piece of land that they've been promised beyond what they've had traditionally. All right, now, verse 16, the song begins to look backward. Here it gets even more interesting. And now the timeline changes a little bit. So the point of time for this song is in the kingdom. But while they're in the kingdom, what do you do sometimes about your situation? You reminisce. How did I get to this place in my life? How did I get to this point? In this part of the song, they begin to reminisce a little. Verse 16. O Lord, they sought you in distress. They could only whisper a prayer. Your chastening was upon them. As the pregnant woman approaches the time to give birth, she writhes and cries out in her labor pains. Thus were we before you, O Lord. We were pregnant. We writhed in labor. We gave birth, as it seems, only to wind. We could not accomplish deliverance for the earth, nor were inhabitants of the world born. Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who die in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. All right, well, if we had not covered some stuff earlier in this book, you, you and I would be very lost here, and it would be, be a long time to get through what this means. I think you'll find it easier given what we've talked about already. Look at how it begins and see if something doesn't ring a bell here. The Jewish people seeking Christ while under distress. Do you remember that scene? That they could only, it says, whisper the prayer because God was chastening them at the time. It's almost like they could barely catch their breath under all that was going on to just whisper a prayer to Christ. When do we know a time when the Jews are under so much stress and persecution and in the midst of all that, the Jews cry out to, to Jesus of all people? Right at the very end of tribulation, Zechariah 12. We talked back in Zechariah 12 about how Jesus returns for the Jews who cry out for him 
And Zechariah 12 is where you see that happen. Let me just remind you of a few verses because I'm seeing a few stairs. Uh, Zechariah 12, verse 3. We're still in this little notch right here, right at the end of tribulation. Verse 3, it says, It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. The scene is the Armageddon moment of all the nations of the world led by the Antichrist coming down to Jerusalem to defeat the Jews one last time and do an end to the Jews, right? And this is a very end of tribulation. God sees this happen and says, yeah, I'm going to create this situation. I'm going to make Jerusalem like a heavy stone that when you try to lift it, you hurt yourself. And then in verse 8 of that same chapter of Zechariah, it says, In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, and the angel of the Lord before them. So he defends them from this all right, but how does he do it? Verse 9, And in that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. A mass conversion of every last Jew in Jerusalem done by the Spirit under God's authority for the purpose of creating a mass call out for Christ, which then leads to Christ's return to save the Jewish people. That is the end of tribulation. That's the moment of Revelation 19. That's what is being alluded to here in Isaiah 26:16. O Lord, they, the Jews, sought you in distress. They could only whisper a prayer. Your chastening was upon them. So this is them again in Judah singing this song remembering how they got here. The Jewish people brought to faith. Now, if some of this is new, and I don't remember who was here at what point in Isaiah, this is the tie-in to Luke chapter 13, the very last verse of Luke chapter 13, when Jesus, in His declaration to the Jewish leadership that they had lost the hope of the kingdom in His day, that they had sealed their fate and He was not going to offer them the kingdom any longer and that generation would be judged for their rejection of the Messiah. He says, what? Your house is being left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's from the Psalms. The statement meaning, you don't get to see me again until you ask for me. And not just some of you, but the entire nation must come to an understanding of who I am before I will return for you. And that's accomplished in Zechariah 12 by by God's power under the chastening of tribulation. Now, if this is whetting your appetite, uh, you got Ruth and you got Revelation coming up soon. By the way, here's some great homework. I'm going to leave this as homework because uh, time doesn't permit. It'll be worth your time, folks. Trust me. Do you want to read the prayer? Do you want to read what the Jews actually say when they're in this time of distress and they're calling out to Christ? Zechariah summarizes it here, right? They cry out on the one whom they pierced and so on. But the actual words of the prayer are recorded in Scripture. Psalms 79 and particularly Psalm 80, back to back, are the prayer. And when you read those, you'll see immediately why I say that. Go look at what's said in there and the circumstances that are being described. And you see David recording what the Jews cry out. And then you see David recording what happens after they cry it. Particularly Psalm 80. Psalm 80 is the, is the climax of it. Part of the prayer is also revealed later in Isaiah, so we'll come to it about chapter 63. 17 and 18. Isaiah uses the comparison of a pregnant woman here giving birth. What is he comparing it to? What, what's the picture he's drawing out here? It's of how God brought the Jewish people out of disobedience and into faith. But, but I love the way he does this. 
in verses 17 and 18, he says, Israel was, in a sense, in labor pains for thousands of years. If you think about it from how God chastened them going all the way back to Babylon, and actually it's about to start in Isaiah's day, right? He's saying, it's like you've been in labor to give birth to faith, to give birth to an obedient nation of people. But what does it say? As the pregnant woman approaches the time to give birth, she rises and cries out in pain. Thus were we before you. We were like a pregnant woman who couldn't give birth to faith. And then he says in verse 18, we were pregnant, we writhed in labor, we gave birth, but only to wind. In other words, it was fruitless. We never could give to God, they could never, a fruitful nation. And then it says, we could not accomplish deliverance for the earth. You see, in the power that they had as natural men, they were never going to accomplish this birth. But it says, nor were the inhabitants of the world born, meaning no one was born through their own effort. And we're talking here about the born again faith that, it's, that this is picturing. But how will it happen? Verse 19. This is one of the only verses, and I, I, I could count them on one hand, the number of Old Testament verses that overtly describe resurrection. This is why the Pharisees and the Sadducees could even have an argument over it. Because it was very rare to find something in Scripture that says it overtly in the Old Testament. Now, it's in the Old Testament in more subtle ways all over the place. But if you had to go find that killer verse that says there will be resurrection, this is one of the few there actually are. In 19, here you have corpses rising. Those who have gone before in the dust will return to life. Who are we talking about? Now, I don't just mean generally, because I know generally we're talking about anyone who's died and as a believer is resurrected, comes back to life. In fact, even unbelievers have resurrection. So that's not what we're talking about. It's a Jewish song sung in Judah about Jews in their time. Looking backward, they're reminiscing. Who are they reminiscing about being coming out of the grave? It can't be the ones who were living as they left tribulation. It's the Old Testament saints. The Jews who died as believers and and, and faithful men and women, like in Abraham, for example, who at some point in the past from this moment were resurrected. In other words, this verse gives us evidence that Old Testament saints have been resurrected and brought into the kingdom and are living amongst these Jews today because they're talking about it here in a reflective way. You did this to these people. Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Another reason we know they have to have been resurrected is that the Jewish people are called to share the kingdom. That's their promise. You could not have a Jew die in faith and then stay unresurrected all the way through the, the kingdom. The whole point was to come into the kingdom. That, that's the fulfillment of the promises to Israel. We're going to move one little step further in the song, looking even further back in time. Now we're looking at the circumstances of Israel during the tribulation. The moment we just looked at was that moment when they all cry out for him. Let's move just a little further back into tribulation. What was it like for the Jew during tribulation prior to the moment when they cry out and are saved? Verse 20. Come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. For behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her stain, her slain. Sorry. The Lord is speaking in these verses, right? Come, my people. First person. The Lord calls Israel my people. So he's talking to the Jews again. He says he invites them. He says into your rooms closing the door behind, 
hiding them for a little while until the indignation runs its course. Well, we may not know what rooms are yet. We're not sure what the door is, but indignation, that's got to refer to tribulation. Not only because of the whole scene and the setting here of the book, uh, of where we are in the book, but you can go to just a couple other places as a cross-reference. Jeremiah, for example, Jeremiah 10.10. One verse, you can see it clearly. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. And his, at His wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure His indignation. Kind of makes a, a general reference to the way He treats the world during tribulation. Daniel's even clearer. Daniel 8.19. He said, Behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. Well, you can't get much clearer than that. He calls it the indignation, a final period at the appointed time of the end. So indignation is a term in Scripture in the Old Testament commonly used to describe God's wrath poured out in tribulation. So when in tribulation do we see God's people, the Israelites, the Jews rather, called to enter into rooms and closing the door behind so they can be hidden from the indignation? Do we know of any group of Jews who do that? In Petra, right? So this would be a reminiscing of how, even in the midst of all this tribulation, he made a way for his faithful Jews to be hidden in Petra. And it's all right before the Lord comes out from his hiding place. We're going to stop there, but in chapter 27, just to leave you with a little bit of anticipation, the song moves here to talking about another event associated with the end of tribulation. One verse just to tempt you and then we'll stop. In that day... The Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. Any any question about who that is? What part of the book of Revelation does this correspond to? When do we see God finally putting an end to Satan? Because if you didn't know, that's who we're talking about. Right here, right at the very end of the Messianic kingdom. Remember, we already read it at the end of the thousand years. He lets loose Satan to deceive the nations. Immediately following that, he devours all those who came in in an attempt to destroy God in the mountain and King and Christ in the mountain. Fire devours them all. If you read the very next verse, what do we hear happening? Satan being destroyed. He's finally thrown in the lake of fire along with all the unbelievers at the great white throne judgment. So my point is simply to say as we end tonight, what's going on as we move into chapter 27? Well, like we've said all along, The little apocalypse seems to mirror the basic structure of Revelation. We've moved out of tribulation. Tonight it was all about the Messianic kingdom. Now we're moving into what follows at the very end. That big judgment at the the end where Satan now is judged as he concludes in chapter 27. Following that, we go into probably the largest division of the book. It's actually two sections. It's a lot of history. It'll It'll take us back out of some of this symbolic imagery and back to some more history. Remember the story of King Ahaz? Remember the mistake he made trying to trust Egypt for his defense instead of trusting in God for his defense and all that came from that? If you remember way back in those chapters, I mentioned that there was a consequence for his successor, Hezekiah. Well, we're moving into the section here where we look at the consequences of Ahaz's mistake and the next series of events that happen as a result in the life of Hezekiah. It's a long section, so it becomes more history. That picks up at the end of 27. All right. Father, I do pray that what we hear tonight is uh, something that makes the the world to come that you've promised more tangible and more accessible. Father, we know it's right around the corner. And in your timing, Father, according to to how you see the world in, in eternal terms, 
it is uh, but a blink of time away. It is, it is practically here. But for us, Father, as we wait day to day, I pray, Father, that we would continue to have a mind and a heart that appreciates that Scripture is, is to be understood in a tangible way. And I, I pray, Father, that it would come out of us as we live and witness and talk to others. And it would modify and, and control our decision-making as well. That we would be faithful, Father, in, in waiting for that day and start to live now, Father, with an appreciation for what you expect. And uh, let us come back next week, Father, with renewed energy to study again and to continue through your book. We pray these things in Jesus' name as always. Amen.